Welcome to the podcast of Steve Flora. I have been a pastor for over 35 years and lived in Egypt as an international pastor for 10 and a half years. I want to ask the question today, where is your citizenship? Back in the early 1970s, my life dramatically changed. My family had moved to the border of the U.S. and Mexico from a white middle-class culture in the American Midwest, and it was right before my senior year in high school. Yep, a horrible time to move as a teenager. Well, I went back after I graduated from high school some 13 months later, and my friends had become Christians, and they talked to me about how being a Christian is more than just attending church. I had gone to church every week for 18 years, but they said it's a relationship with God. But what really grabbed my attention was the talk about the end times. They told me the rapture could come any day, and Magog and Antichrist are poised to conquer the world. Well, this was all very frightening news to me, and so I figured now is the time to take a stand against the evil rising up in the world. Prayer had been banned in schools in 1963, and in 1968 it was the pinnacle of the social upheaval that left a polarized society. There were protests and demonstrations and riots. There was even a flu pandemic in 1968 and 69 that killed 4 million people worldwide by some estimates, similar to our current COVID-19 deaths. So things were unsettled and chaotic in 1968, not that dissimilar to how they are now in the last year and a half. So in the 1970s, when I became a Christian, conservative Christian voices were speaking out more and more in the public forum. There was a growing pushback against the declining morals of society. And I began to look and see all of these things around me deteriorating, and it was unsettling. It was a fearful trend. In the 1980s, battle lines solidified as Jerry Falwell's moral majority moved into politics and into elections. But as a conservative, I was feeling a growing fear, and that was coupled with a sense of impotence that biblical standards were continuing to erode. By the 1990s, the influence of the moral majority was waning. But even more alarming to me was the statistic that over 85% of American churches were plateaued or declining. That statistic has been the same for the last several decades. Sure, there were megachurches that were getting public headlines. These megachurches were booming but more from people exiting smaller churches. It seemed to me that society was deteriorating and the church's influence was declining. So as a pastor, over the last 15 years, it was a fearful and bleak time in the middle 1990s. So I wondered what difference could I make in the cultural wars? Or maybe we just hunker down inside the walls of our fortress and stay safe. Well, Ed Stetzer of the Billy Graham Center at Wheaton College makes this observation. Evangelicals have an inferiority complex because culture has sort of 
pushed us aside. In August 2020, the New York Times published an article called Christianity Will Have Power, which was drawn from a 2016 speech in Iowa by then-candidate for president Donald Trump. Here's what the article concluded. Trump is their protector, the bully who is on their side, the one who offered safety amid their fears that their country as they know it and their place in it is changing and changing quickly. An entire way of life, one in which their values were dominant, could be headed for extinction. So what this article was saying is that the people would no longer feel invisible and ignored. They had a voice in this presidential candidate. The article concludes, quote, the Trump era has revealed the complete fusion of evangelical Christianity and conservative politics. Mainstream evangelical Christianity has made plain its deepest impulses, end quote. Well, Ed Stetzer goes on to write, our people are being formed by political ideology more than they are by theology. So I, too, have keenly felt this tension of wanting to stand for biblical truth while not selling my soul to a political party or a political cause. How do I stand for biblical truth and not get pulled into a whole platform? How do I follow what God wants? So this raised the question in my mind, and what citizenship rules my life? Kingdom citizenship or national citizenship? The word kingdom occurs in the New Testament 162 times. For instance, Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven. Ephesians 2.19 you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people. Pastor Anley Stanley asked in a sermon, What legacy will I leave? What story will my life tell? One decision at a time is what he says. We tell our life story one decision at a time. So, my question to myself and to you are you a Christian first or an American first? Now, I know that's a hard question. It's not an either or. It's a both and. Yet for me, the citizenship that has priority in my heart will have the most influence in my life and in my legacy. So, what citizenship rules my life? Another key question is, what is the source of my allegiances and authorities? Francis Schaeffer's 1976 epic work, How Should We Then Live?, traced the migration of authority in the West from God-centered in the first several centuries until the Renaissance and then the Enlightenment. So God-centered, and then it became man-centered, and then in the latter 1800s and the 1900s, it became nothing-centered, or as he called it, fragmentation. Francis Schaeffer predicted that the next shift would be to autocratic rule, to restore order in the chaos and the fragmentation. He likened it to the French 
revolution in the late 1790s, which became completely chaotic and fragmented without an authority. And then from that, Napoleon, the dictator and emperor, would emerge. But I think that authority in the West, instead of autocratic single authority of a person or a small group, it's now dispersed to a multitude of authorities rooted in varying tribes. And by tribes, I mean our little group, especially in social media. Social media is now the authority platform for the younger generations. Millennials have created multiple sources for authority, which jumps between online friends and celebrities, mass media influences and advertising, political leaders, and ethnic community, just to name a few. Consequently, there are no universal standards, which is a hallmark of our postmodern era. Whatever you and your group decide, that goes for you. Maybe not for others, but for you, but then we tend to apply it to others. So my social network, whether it's online or not, tells us and reinforces us in what is truth. And that's including Christians, that we listen to people and groups and our tribe that reinforce to us what we think is truth. Do we have an objective standard though? For instance, our chosen news source, whether we're on the right or on the left, are our echo chambers. They tend to reinforce our views rather than engaging us with anyone in a different opinion. We've had a person who says, here's the proper news sources that you should be listening to because all we want to do is know the truth. And yet this particular list of news sources was very biased news sources as are the news sources from the opposite end of the political spectrum. See, we don't want to engage with people we believe are opposed to God. And we want to hear from people that we agree with, that we think God will agree with. And yet when you study the life of Jesus, he engaged both the conservative and the liberal religious people of his day. Those were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the conservative Pharisees, the liberal Sadducees. Jesus engaged with both parties. So if Christians are going to stand on the authority of Christ's kingdom, then we have to ask those hard questions about our source of authority and our citizenship ruling our life. So am I really going to live by the principles of God's kingdom if that's my number one citizenship? And not just some of the principles of God's kingdom, but all of the principles. And I got to say, there are some really uncomfortable principles like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 articulates. I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is God's constitution for his kingdom. When Jesus taught about being poor in spirit, lamenting, meekness, being more righteous, merciful, pure, being peacemakers, and enduring persecution, those were not just qualities just for super saints or someday in heaven. No, these were principles for how God's kingdom citizens think and act right now in this world. 
Matthew 6.33 summarizes the Sermon on the Mount, I think, very well in saying, Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The hallmark of a kingdom citizen is that our first and foremost priority is God's kingdom and God's righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount destroys the idea that right beliefs are enough or a right doctrine will carry us and that's the main thing that matters. See, right beliefs must saturate our inner being and are then revealed and flow into our behaviors. When Jesus was speaking to the conservative Pharisees of his time, it was those who had right beliefs and good behaviors in the public forum, but whose inward lies reflected something less than righteousness. Now, the Pharisees started out a few hundred years before Jesus came on the scene. They were much like us. They were trying to return to God's standards in a Jewish world that had compromised with the immoral Greek culture for a couple of centuries after Alexander the Great conquered the known world in 333 BC. And they wanted to return to, let's, let's get biblical truth and let's live by it and not blend it together with godless Greek culture. Would we be horrified to hear that we are the Pharisees of our day? Those with right beliefs and good behavior, but whose hearts have drifted from the love of God? Are our lives characterized by a love and care for others around us, no matter who they are? Christians today are similarly seen as Pharisees were back then, as judgmental, angry, unloving, and isolated. And those were the hallmarks of the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Judgmental, angry, unloving, separated, isolated. And the world sees Christians today a lot like that. So are we Pharisees today? That we think because we believe the right things and we've kept our big behaviors clean and right that we're following the righteousness of God? The Sermon on the Mount challenges our heart to go deeper. So how have we done in the last year in demonstrating kingdom citizenship? What are our lives reflecting? What is motivating and driving us? Now I have to be honest. I have struggled watching Christians demanding their constitutional freedoms more than exhibiting a kingdom heart. During the pandemic, is your passion more focused on speaking truth to power or engaging neighbors in love? The neighbors that are different from us, the neighbors who are like us, the people in our echo chamber, the people in some other point of view that we might disagree with, are we engaging them in love like a kingdom citizenship or are we avoiding them because they are threatening? Billy Graham wrote in Christianity Today many decades ago, quote, despite the tyranny of Rome, I read no speeches in the Bible by Peter, John, or Paul against the political regime of their day. 
They preached Christ and they preached Christ alone and did it within the context of a tyranny that eventually imprisoned and killed them. End quote. See, Jesus did not get caught up in the politics of Rome. Jesus resisted becoming the political messiah that the people and his own apostles wanted to overthrow Rome, to have a political messiah, because Jesus said, my kingdom is bigger than that. The kingdom of God is my mission to overthrow the captivity of sin in the human heart. That's my mission. It's much bigger and longer lasting than Rome. So decades later, Paul told believers in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Now again, this does not mean that we should not have any civic or political involvement. It's speaking to what drives your heart. Where is your priority? Where is your energy? In fact, the Bible demonstrates an opposite priority from demanding our rights. See, we don't live as kingdom citizens in demanding our rights, but surrendering our rights. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 20, verses 27 and 28, whoever wants to be first must be your slave or servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The writer of the Hebrews reminds the readers in chapter 10 and verses 33 and 34, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So suffering clarifies our priorities, even during a pandemic. This is what kingdom citizens look like and act like. Their allegiance is to God and his kingdom first and foremost, to be citizens of that kingdom. Now let me repeat I'm not saying we cannot be involved in the political process. I am speaking to our priority, where our time and energy are most focused. Yes, we should vote. Yes, we can protest when we disagree. And yes, when government clearly and directly violates scripture, then we obey God and not man. 2,000 years ago, the Roman world had running hot and cold water. An amazing thing for 2,000 years ago. It was an amazing technology for their time. But there was one flaw. The pipes in their homes were made out of lead because of how bendable of a metal lead is. It had an unexpected impact on the health of the Roman citizens. So it begs the question in my mind, what are the lead pipes of our world? Those things that bring us uh, comfort or advance us into the future, but they damage us at the same time. Hidden things that we may not even see. Things that help and hurt at the same time. 
The pandemic has pulled the cover off of our deep-seated fears. Fear drives us to keep things familiar and stable, especially for those of us who are baby boomers or those in the even older generation. See, we resist change like our parents did in the 1960s. And to quote Ed Stetzer again, people right now, he says, are afraid. They're unsure and they're isolated. And when you're afraid and unsure and isolated, conspiracy theories just escalate, end quote. Conspiracy theories serve to spread fear. But you know, it's no accident that the most frequent command in the Bible is fear not. This tells us something about God's heart. Fear not and God's kingdom are bound together. As we pursue God's kingdom, trusting and depending on God to be the source and the power in our heart, it pushes away fear. It gives us hope and knowing he is in control. 2 Timothy 1.7 addresses this very issue. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This is kingdom living. Fear cannot be our motivation in this harrowing time. We can shift our focus off ourselves and on to bringing his kingdom to others right here, right now. Here's the bottom line. Do we trust our king to fight this battle in this increasingly confused and troubled world? Are we willing to put our fear into God's strong hands, knowing he's got this? He will empower us to be kingdom citizens and make a difference in the lives of the people around us. Let's pray. God, help us to be kingdom citizens. Help our allegiance to be first and foremost to you and demonstrating the characters of the Sermon on the Mount, those characteristics that go down to the heart and flow into our behaviors, that we wouldn't settle for just having right doctrine or taking care of not committing the big sins that everyone can see, but change our hearts to make us loving and caring, able to dialogue with those even outside of our own echo chamber and have fruitful, redemptive kingdom conversations. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.